Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter, the podcast which takes a good look at why mothers matter so much to their children, why mothers matter in society and what matters to mothers themselves. In this podcast, Sarah Douglas Pennant talks very movingly about how she has coped with bereavement. The death of a child is every parent's nightmare, and I felt it was really brave of Sarah to reflect on how her life has been affected and to talk about how she's managed to keep going. There's much that we leave unsaid because words sometimes can't really express the depth of emotion involved. Through it all, Sarah's got a really positive approach to life. And she's testimony to how much mothers really matter as the anchor in a family in the middle of a storm. Well, thank you, Sarah, very much for meeting with me today. And um, I'm really interested to hear more about your life. I know a bit about you, but uh, more about your life already. And um, if we start at uh, what did you do when you first left school? How did you start off adult life? Um, Well, I was a Montessori teacher at first, and I trained uh, to teach children between three and seven. And I learned a lot about child development, which has been very useful to me with my own children, because Montessori was a pioneer who first understood that um, children needed furniture of their own size. They needed toys which were educational and helped their development. She promoted the idea of respecting the child, following the child's interest, giving them independence and um, just giving them a lovely time when they were little in an environment that was beneficial to them, not just being minded but being properly um, taught of things of their own level. And she she divided things down to their simplest level. So to to learn to dress, for example, they had special frames with buttons or poppers or buckles, things like that. And so they could learn on these and then be able to dress themselves. She was very keen on them being their own, masters of their own world, really, and knowing how to conduct themselves and how to be polite and how to treat each other with respect. And it was a very good system. And I did that for some years. And how did that... um affect uh, your when you had children because you've had uh, three children how did how did you did you consciously apply what you'd learned from being a Montessori teacher with them yes I did and I actually had a, a Montessori school in my house at that stage so that they all went through that and got their start there which was a good start I think Yes, yes. And did it did it help you when they were being difficult or tod- <laughs> being toddlers, having tantrums and stuff? Did they did did you think consciously, right? Well, this is what I've learned how to do. Or did it as their mother? Did you still get really wound up? Well, of course, all mothers, you know, don't behave quite as perfectly as they would like to do. <laughs> but uh, I found the idea of following the child's interest very good and trying to give them positive. Uh, instructions rather than negative and uh, another watchword is what you um, what you focus on you get more of so if they're being naughty Mm. and you focus on the naughtiness you get more of that but if you can praise something that they're doing right even if it's the tiniest little thing like not quarreling for half an hour something like that even is a good thing to praise um, then you get more of the good behavior and um, I tried to use that and um, make a as as Montessori friendly an environment as I could, but of course I was as imperfect as most people. But <laughs> I did try and do it right. Yes. So can you tell us about your your children then? You had uh, three children. I had two daughters, um, eighteen months apart. First, mm-hmm. actually, to begin with, we were told we'd never have children, but then oh, right. we did. Yes. And I had Anna. And um, 18 months later, Millie appeared. And then when they were two and three, my two girls were diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. So then um, I didn't have any more children for a bit. And then after some years, we had Johnny, who didn't have cystic fibrosis. So that was my three. What were the symptoms with um, Millie and Anna? Could you tell there was something wrong with them? 
Um, at first, we didn't recognise anything was wrong, but actually Anna had a very... Um, she had very fast tummy and poos, and her they, the poos were very smelly, and she also had a huge appetite, although she was rather small. And people sometimes said, you know, that doesn't smell right, or... Um, are you sure she's okay? And I used to ask every doctor I saw, and they all said, well, she's not failing to thrive, so don't worry, she'll grow out of it. And then one winter, they got bad colds and didn't get well for a long time. And so we went to the doctor who sent us, actually sent us to ENT, thinking that Millie would need grommets. And the ENT specialist said, I think her chest is the real problem. And so then we went to have the chests look at, looked at, and at that stage, they were both diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And that was unusually late. Mm. What is cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis is a um, condition that you're born with. It comes from a recessive gene. So the parents have to be, both of them have to be carriers. Mm. And then um, when they have children, there's a one in four chance that they will have a child, that the baby will have cystic fibrosis. And it's a disease of lungs and digestion. So the digestion doesn't work very well. And typically without treatment, they'd be very thin because like Anna, the food would just go through them very quickly. Mm. And But the more pressing problem really is the chests because they uh, they're prone to chest infections and the danger is that they gradually lose lung, the lung capacity diminishes and the lung infections get worse. And when the girls were diagnosed, the life expectancy was about 15 years old. It was called a disease of children and young people. And there was no such thing as an adult with cystic fibrosis unless they had it very mildly. Mm. And was there any treatment uh, to keep them going? Yes, there was a lot of treatment. You had to do twice daily physio and give them pills, and pills for their food. And then the minute there was any sign of trouble, they went on antibiotics. The idea being that you should keep them free of lung damage. So they were treated very quickly and aggressively for any bugs that they got. And the physio... Um, at first never produced anything. They're supposed to cough up sputum, but they never produced anything. But as they got older, uh, they did. And then uh, in due course, we had to also have nebulizers. And the nebulizer is a, a form of vaporized antibiotic that they breathe in through a mouthpiece and goes directly to the lungs. And that became twice daily. And all that, the, the physio has to be performed. And then the nebulizer stuff has to be prepared and washed up afterwards. So it's all quite a business. For two children, mm. it was a lot of work. And were you still running your Montessori school? Mm. I ran it for some years after that, and I got help with it. And finally, I found that when the girls were getting iller and Millie had a collapsed lung, I just found it was too much to have in the house. And I tried to, um, I tried to send it out to be run in a, in a church hall, and um, with me still in charge. But in fact, the person who would take it over wanted to buy the whole thing, and so I sold it. So sadly, mm. after nine years, it, it, it left me and it left my care. Mm. And was it a um, full-time job looking after Millie and Anna? Did, did it take up all your days, or were they both at the same time you'd do the physio with both of them? Uh, uh, well, you do the physio one by one, because they have mm. to be tipped and pat- you have percussion patting them quite hard clapping their chests and then making them huff and cough and clear their chests. And by the time they were getting bad, of course, I had Johnny as well, so he was the baby coming along behind. And it's not a full-time job, but it took up quite a lot of my day. And as they got iller, there was always doctors to ring about things or you had to give samples of their sputum and take them into the hospital or take blood tests and that sort of thing. So quite a lot to do. Mm. And and what was the age gap between um, Millie was the younger one, wasn't she, and uh, Johnny? It was six years from Millie to Johnny. So the girls were six and seven when he was born. Yeah, that's uh, hard work then. It was, but we yeah. had a wonderful year. The first year that he was born, everybody was well and mm. life was just bliss. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice, nice memories. And is it, so what happened with um, Anna then? Did she, did she get progressively worse? Anna did really well 
till she was about 10, I should think. And she was pony mad and she started riding and she went to a school where they could also ride and there were ponies and stables and hay and straw. And she started getting poorly and not really recovering properly. And from and by 11, she was there was a sort of sinister worry about her health because she just didn't seem to really get better with the antibiotics. And they took quite a long time to discover that what had happened was that she was seriously allergic to the spores on hay and straw. Mm. So the riding was a real no-no for her. And um, this is called aspergillosis, and it's well known in the horse racing world. Mm. And the the treatment is steroids, but in fact, in her case, it had just got too much of a hold. So from 11 onwards, she never really got fully well again. And Millie was caught much earlier with it. She had a little bit of it, but that was treated and she recovered and that was fine. But Anna got progressively weaker and more um, spending more time in hospital. She hadn't spent any time in hospital till she was, apart from one go when she was six, until she was about 11 or 12. She never actually missed any school mm. or was in hospital. But then she started being frequently in hospital. I was taught her to do the intravenous treatment at home. And, of course, that was a huge undertaking when um, she went on a fortnight's course of antibiotics. We would go into hospital and she would have maybe um, a night or two in hospital to get stabilised and then we'd come home with sacks of equipment needed for um, giving the antibiotics at home and they had to be given at uh, three or four times a day, regular intervals with all the mixing up and the syringes and the needles and all that. And um, we did that with increasing frequency and she just steadily got iller and when she was 14 still riding, I may say, she mm. um, went into the hospital for the last time mm. and she died at 14. That's very sad. Um, uh, yeah. And uh, so how did um, Anna and Johnny cope then? Millie and Johnny. Millie, sorry, Millie and Johnny. Yeah. Um, Millie was very stalwart. I think she... Um, it must have been quite shocking for her to see that you could die of the thing she had too mm. um but she was very brave about it actually and she had just started at her senior school and um Anna had gone had got tottered out of hospital to go and see her into school and mm. start off on the first day and her friends didn't even realize that she was so ill <laughs> and thought that she was about to start school and Millie began at school and Anna died three weeks later and Millie was very kindly looked after by all the older girls, but she settled in actually very well. And when the housemistress told me that she was getting on very well, I, I said, oh, well, it's just the sympathy effect. And she said, no, it's her. And I think without the competition of Anna, who was getting weaker as as she got iller and wanting to keep Millie down because Millie was threatening to overtake her. Mm. I think when that competitiveness was taken away from Millie, she actually took off. So she survived, actually. The one who was much worse hit was Johnny, mm. who absolutely adored Anna, and she adored him, and she was always longing for him to come and get into bed with her and give her a cuddle and be with her and just comfort her. And when she had suddenly died, Johnny was completely shattered and didn't know what he hadn't done right and why she'd gone. And um, he was a very sad little boy for quite a long time. It was heartrending, actually. Mm. It must have been so difficult for you uh, and your husband to cope with, the, you know, Johnny's sadness, your own sadness. Yes, everything. We had some very good help, though. Oh, uh, did you? Yeah. Um, after about, I think about a year after Anna had died, I found a, a child psychotherapist for oh. Johnny, because he was becoming. He spent a lot of time by himself. He he um, used to play obsessive games in the garden. He had his school tie had a particular meaning for him, like 
something, it's almost like his worry bead. Mm. And I just was worried that he was disturbed. So we found this nice therapist and he went to see her for quite a long time on a weekly basis. And she really helped him. And I also, when Anna was getting ill, found a wonderful healer, sadly, who's now died, but she was in Salisbury near where I live. And I used to go, I took the children to see her, I took the girls, and she was very intuitive and she believed in things like auras and angels. And she she obviously could tell that Anna was not going to survive, but Millie was. Mm. And she did her best and she did healing on her, but it couldn't actually prevent Anna dying. But after she died, I used to go and visit her. And she was just a wise woman who taught me so much and it's really thanks to her that I've survived all I've been through. Really? Mm. Is there anything you can think of that was particularly helpful? Well, one of the most helpful things she said is, remember, everything that happens to you in life is there to teach you something. Mm. And, you know, so you don't... You, you don't feel how hard done by you are or you're going to get revenge or whatever it is. You just think, OK... What can I learn from this? And I found that the most strengthening thing. And she also, she believed in reincarnation and she said, have you? But she used to say, but my truth isn't necessarily your truth. But she just told me what she believed. And she said, you know, we come into this world to learn the lessons and you've got to, you've got to learn them or they come around again. And her view was that you have to your job in your through your life is to learn how to function how to refine and refine what you are until you become closer to what you think of as perfect truth or perfect goodness or what you think of as god and then when you've been around enough times you can become part of the energy that is God and you don't have to come back. That was her belief. But what it gave me was acceptance that you... She said, um, the, the harder your life... The more times you've been round, the harder the lessons are you've got to learn. You're not in the kindergarten anymore. Hmm. So the lessons are hard and you just have to learn from them. And I find that incredibly helpful too it's sort of flattering to think that you've been around more times than some people say that you have to learn harder lessons and it, it empowers you to learn the lessons and to accept your lot and to view it positively and I have found that very very mm. strengthening mm. yes it's I, I mean there must be so much of a battle in your mind to be able to get the will to carry on and, and have a framework to understand what's gone on and how to go forwards? Well, I, I just think I'm incredibly lucky to have had my children because I mm. so loved them. And, and, the, and the wonderful thing for me is that I don't look back. I know I did whatever I could for them. Mm. So I don't look back thinking, oh, I didn't look after them. I should have been with them. I, should. I, I, I really did. Mm. Because of their great need, I really did devote myself to them and, and that's made me feel that I can let them go without regret mm. because I'm so lucky to have had them at all and you can you can have somebody beside you for a lifetime and, and never really, really feel that you've done all you could for them or you can have them for a short time and it's just a very sweet memory to have had them and and... And you just have to let them go. Mm. Yeah. So I'm um, going back to Johnny then. So he did he find ways of coping uh, with his sadness. He mm. he didn't enjoy his sort of um, primary school years. Really, he wasn't he wasn't the sort of child who's good at all that. So he was longing to be in the football team, but he was never chosen. And he he eventually. Um, when they had endless teams so that everyone was in a team, he was captain of the fifths, which some people didn't <laughs> even turn up for the <laughs> matches. So that was rather humiliating for him. Mm. But then he discovered, he, we changed his school. He was being left down in the class 
below when everybody else was moved up at the school he was at. And I realised after Anna had died, when I started paying attention, that, you know, he was he was with much younger children because he'd been left behind. And it was because he was hopeless at the things you're meant to be good at age six. Mm. So he was very slow at learning to read and his writing was awful. And he was he was rather poorly coordinated and the the teacher simply didn't see the point of him. So we actually changed his school and he went to somewhere more sympathetic. And the next term, when he was seven, he was very lucky. He went into a class with a teacher who was in her 70s and one of those inspiring, wonderful teachers who just got the point of children like Johnny. And she used to read literature to them and Shakespeare even and G.K. Chesterton and... Um, things you would have thought were way above his level. And probably for some children it was mystifying, but Johnny kind of got it. And she got them writing poems. And suddenly, when he was seven, he produced a really good poem. And it was sent to the headmaster, who wrote back saying, this reminds me of Homer. <laughs> and um, it was he had a rather profound sense of the world in a way that was way beyond his years. And... Um, he he just, he realised that he had a gift and he started writing poems all the time. He wrote them in bed, he wrote them in the car, he wrote them um, at, at school with the teacher. And after he died, I published them. And I'd just like to read one of them, actually, because this shows how sort of artless he was. Let's see if I can find it. The sky... It carries wonderful things like the stars and the sun. It makes a place for the birds to fly free and a place for us to gaze up at. I don't know what we would have done without the sky. Oh, <laughs> and how old was he when he wrote that? Seven. Seven, oh, amazing. And you, and you said his um, writing, well, in the book that you've published, you can see his writing and spelling aren't uh, the same as other people's. They were completely hopeless and you couldn't really even hardly read the poems but when you mm. deciphered them actually what they were saying was rather special and I have I found a lot out about his learning difficulties he he couldn't he could read words like wonderful but not words like it and and mm. and some something about his eyes jiggling on the page stopped him finding it easy to read and so we had quite a lot of work to put those things right and I concentrated on him and I took him to a eye specialist who gave him special exercises and then we had exercises for his coordination and I did quite a lot for him and because he was looked upon as the school dad or the class dad and by the time he'd finished he was um, regarded by his senior school as Oxbridge material but mm. if I hadn't helped him over those early difficulties. I don't think... Uh, there must be so many children who never arrive at their potential because they're humiliated, they're laughed at for their ineptitude, they, they think of themselves as being stupid and it's really very, very tough on them. And children which we discovered Johnny had dyspraxia, not just dyslexia, and that's poor coordination. But as they get older, these children improve naturally and if you can help them with exercises and coaching and whatever you need to just get them over the difficulties, then they're able to fly. And Johnny was really taking off in the end, which was wonderful to see. Mm. And um, you said that he died, though. He died. Um, he just... He died swimming in a pool, trying to beat his own underwater swimming record, we think. Mm. And um, it's a... Actually, no, none of us knew. It's a well-known phenomenon that if you over-breathe, thinking that you're going to get more air into your lungs, you can make yourself light-headed. And we think that Johnny made repeated attempts to beat his own record and would have passed out underwater, and I found him in the pool mm. dead. Yeah. He was 17. Uh, that's horrible. That must, uh, well, I mean, you can't, what can you say? You can say it's beyond anything. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But Johnny was a very old soul and he, mm. he, he was sort of, 
he had a one had a sense of him thinking of things beyond way beyond his age and understanding even when he was little i didn't used to worry about him watching things beyond him on television because i uh, uh, or too old for him because i felt he had a sort of profound understanding and I think sometimes I think he just came into this world for a short time. He died on mm. the quietest, loveliest summer day with mm. no reason why he would have done. It just happened. Mm. And if you'd said, um, if you wanted to, a child's life to end quietly, it couldn't have been a more peaceful end, I suppose. But mm. um, we don't know why, but he, he he'd certainly had a wonderful span in life whilst he was here. Mm. And you published a, a book of his poems. Is that is that something, did you start on that quite soon after he died? Or was it well, we did, the, the, the first thing we did after he died, one of his friends said a few days later, everybody was in deep shock, of course, because mm. this terrible thing had happened. And the friend said, oh, I think me and my friends are going to walk to... Um, Jura, which is an island in the Hebrides where we go every summer. We're going to walk from Southampton to Jura in the summer because Johnny was a, a great Saints fan and Saints is the Southampton football team. So, um, And when my husband heard this, he thought it was the most brilliant idea and it was a real focus for our grief. So we started organising a walk with Johnny's friends and anyone who wanted to join us for the next summer and we walked 600 miles mm. from Southampton to Jura, joined by different people coming and going, about 140 in all. Mm. And um, we organised the route. His school lent us a minibus. We did transport, food, accommodation, everything. And when we'd been organising it for a little while, we suddenly thought, hang on, we we had founded a, a fundraising trust in memory of Anna when she died. So we had the Anna Trust and we'd been raising money for cystic fibrosis equipment and research. And the girls were treated at Southampton General Hospital. And we thought, well, this is an opportunity. If we're giving these young people transport and accommodation and food, they could certainly mm. raise something. So we worked out that if they all raised 50 pounds per day that they walked with us we would get about 25,000 pounds so we thought that was good so we sent a round robin to the young people joining us or anyone because adult friends joined as well and um, asked them to do this and we got the whole thing organized and we got everybody slotted into what days they were going to walk and all this and we did the walk it was the most cathartic thing we could have done it was absolutely wonderful being with Johnny's friends the whole of mm. he he died when he was 17 he had one more year at school so by the time we did the walk they were they'd literally just finished their A-levels and they came between the A-levels and the Leavers Ball for that week and walked so we had 40 young people reminiscing about Johnny and telling us all the naughty things he'd done <laughs> which we didn't know about and we had he had a great gang of girlfriends from the local convent and they came too <laughs> And uh, we stayed, we camped, we stayed in people's barns, we stayed, sometimes people made room in their houses, everyone had to bring their own sleeping bag. And it was completely wonderful, actually. And nobody ever wanted to leave. We had to push them out, saying, there's no room in the minibus, you've got to go. <laughs> um, and we ended up on Jura, and then we had a few people there, and we scattered his ashes where we'd scattered Anna's ashes in a loch up in the hills in Jura, and by this time, Millie, uh, who was by now uh, 24 by the time of the walk, had a, she had gone, I missed out about Millie, but when she left school, um, she went to Spain. And um, by the time we did the walk, she had met Mr. Wright, who was called mm. Manolo. And she and Manolo joined us on the walk, and after the day after we scattered the ashes, they got engaged. Oh. And oh. we had a most wonderful Kaylee or dance in the local hall after the wedding, after the engagement, rather, and um, that was the end of the walk. And um, 
by the way, we raised 285,000. Wow, wow. Yes. Do, you, do you know what it was spent on? Was it anything yes, particular? Yes, it, it's a research project, which is, oh. it's, uh, I called it infection detection. It's a way of finding out. We funded um, a project to find, try and define the markers that show that an infection is coming. Mm. So first, the first thing was to have a cohort of patients with cystic fibrosis giving their sputum samples in two or three times a week. And we've funded the courier to go around and collect those. And they've got this huge bank of sputum samples of patients and also their medical records. So they know, they can correlate what was going on in their sputum with what was going on with their health. And they discovered that a lot of the antibiotics weren't really working. The lungs are like a, uh, uh, they're filled of the, the antibodies or the bugs in the chest are like warring tribes. And if you suppress one, another one can rise up. So you've got to not necessarily kill off the one that's doing the harm because it might invite in a, a, an even worse one. And it's actually revolutionised the way they look at antibiotic mm. treatment in cystic fibrosis. It's ongoing. These things, it's never one clear-cut project when you fund it because one discovery leads to another. Then some projects end up no, going nowhere. It's a, it's a false trail and they have to go back and take another path. And um, it, it's it's gone on now for many years actually this project because the, the bank of um, information they've got to analyze is huge but it has made a huge impact on mm. on antibiotic treatment well done <laughs> and is anna's trust still running Jeez. well hardly just mm. it is and i uh, johnny's poems is sold in aid of anna's trust but i don't actually do major fundraising mm. things anymore but sometimes we've just had somebody running the marathon for us and johnny's poem sells in in aid of it, and um, they're, they're, they're not available on Amazon. They're available for me, actually. And when did you put the book together? Did you think about it when you were walking? Or had you thought I about wa it I that? wanted to do it, and I, I tried to do it in time for the walk, but actually, by the way, I'd had cancer by then. Oh, uh, okay. Oh. The year before Johnny oh. died. Well, the year that Johnny died. And so I was feeling a bit weak. Oh. And so we actually put it together. I had a wonderful friend who helped me because we printed them in facsimile and in legible, proper printed English because mm. the facsimile is, is sometimes the writing is so, the spelling is so inventive that you might not quite know what the word is. Mm. Um, and we got it together for the following Christmas, right. really. Um and uh, it's been a great legacy. It sold over three thousand, over nearly four thousand copies. Wow! Yeah. And, and was that? Um, did it help at all? Did it help you having that? Focus Terrifically. Or, yeah. It's so lovely to be with him, and I love people talking about him. And I've had lovely letters about mm. it. And um, it's been a, a great thing, actually. Mm. And it's raised quite a lot of money, in fact. Brilliant. Yes. And and so and then Millie was was doing quite well with the Millie, Millie did really well at school. Yeah. She became head girl of Sherburn. All right. Um, she then went on a gap year, making her mother tremble. But uh, she yeah, did. who did all her physiotherapy? Oh, she did her own. Oh, okay. And she could, she then. learned to do her own IV antibiotics and oh, everything. Right. She's very Gosh. capable, Millie. First, she yeah. went to a cookery school, and so she's good cook. And then she went on her gap travels. Then she came back and she uh, went to Bristol, west of England, to learn to be a teacher, but she found that too much for her. So she mm -hmm. left there and went to teach English as a foreign language in Seville. Mm. And she was in Seville in all for seven years. She absolutely loved it. The climate was great. She taught in a language school that operated after school hours so that she was able to have long, easy mornings when she did her physio and everything. Um, and she she ended up teaching children. So she did so well because she was doing the same sort of teaching that she wanted to do, but in a sunny climate and not too much pressure. And she had a great time and went learned to be fluent in Spanish, made lots of friends and did incredibly well. And then she married Manolo uh, after Johnny's... She met him just after Johnny had died and she married him after the year after Johnny's walk. Mm. and then all she wanted was to have a child and that took a little bit of time but she 
did become pregnant and um, naturally. And then she was so lucky because by then her health wasn't so good and we were a bit worried about her, but she managed to get pregnant. She had Lucia in uh, 2009, and um, but the trouble was that her health was already in decline and she wasn't well. She wasn't ever very well after that. Mm. But she was really thrilled to have this lovely little baby and she moved back from Spain before she was born, so they, they lived with us then mm. because she wasn't very strong and I could help look after the baby. And then sadly, when Lucia was 15 months old, Millie died. Mm. And her husband, Manolo, had been so wonderful. He'd slept beside her in hospital. He'd got special permission to sleep on the floor of her side room mm. all through her illness when she was really ill and adjusting the, the oxygen. She was completely on oxygen by then mm. and looking after her, doing her physio when the physios had gone home and being really amazing. So she was very lucky and very loved all her mm. life, Millie. Mm. And people were very, very sad when she yes. went. Yeah. So she was, she, how old, she was 29, was she? How old she was, was 29. She? So is that quite a long, that's quite old for someone with cystic fibrosis? She, she did she well, well, but nowadays yeah. they live longer. The treatments oh, really? absolutely improved so much. And children, I mean, they become adults and... Quite, I mean, I think they live 40 maybe, sometimes 50. It's ongoing, mm. but um, you know, when Anna died, that was seemed like we thought we would lose Millie within two years, actually. Mm. It was terrifying, but actually, she picked up and she had a wonderfully can do spirit, Millie, and she was always outgoing, thinking of other people, merry, fun. Um, enjoying herself, making the most of life. And I think that positive attitude is incredibly important to mm. health. Mm. It's about not focusing. It's, again, what you focus on, you get more of. She focused on going out to the world, having fun, getting her... She was sensible about her treatment. She got it done, got it out of the way, and then she had a whale of a time mm. where she could. And a lot of the time, of course, she wasn't very well and she got ill and... Um, we didn't spend much time in hospital because we knew how to do the treatment at home. But mm. um, she she made the most of her 29 years, that's mm. for sure. And, I mean, so that's, you know, your third bereavement. Did, was there anything you'd unfortunately learnt from the other two that helped you through? Or is it just as devastating and awful and even worse? Because that's... Everyone. Well, I think when people are terribly ill... Your grief, I mean, it started probably, grieving and acceptance started when they were diagnosed. And by mm. the time Millie nearly died at Easter time, and we sent for everybody. Mm. And, and before these, and people flew in from abroad, the, a lot of Sp the Spanish family came over, all her friends gathered round her in hospital. But before that, the day before, two days before, they'd given her a massive dose of steroids and she'd perked up mm. and she wasn't at all dying. <laughs> she said to the consultant, um, I couldn't die if I wanted to. And, um, um, they came and, you know, they came ready to be absolutely devastated and there she was sitting up in bed. Feeling like a fraud. <laughs> cheering them on, yeah. telling them she was all right asking how they were, telling an, a, a, um, a divorcee friend of ours it was time he got married to his uh, girlfriend, mm. things like that. And uh, it was the most exhausting couple of days, actually, because everybody <laughs> wanted to weep on my shoulder and then go and see Millie. But, in fact, they came out. They spent far longer than their allocated 20 minutes or whatever it was, <laughs> and they all came out grinning. So that was absolutely wonderful. And then she got Ella and... She was such a wonderful patient. She was so considerate of the staff and the nurses. And I can remember being um, stopped in the corridor by the specialist CF nurse saying, Millie is so wonderful. You're all wonderful. And mm. she, they were so um, fond of Millie and appreciative of the way she conducted herself. And her, con her consultant once came, who was a fierce person, 
who Millie wasn't sure about when she first met her. And she took Millie's hand and she said, Millie, when it comes to my time, if I can go with half as much grace as you, mm. I'll be proud of myself. Mm. And she was very wonderful, Millie, actually. And But she got iller and iller. And, we, and one day when she was at home, some weeks before she was the, as bad as this, I said to her, Millie, if you want to talk about dying, it's all right. Mm. And she was terribly grateful. And we we had a little loving round her bed with Manolo. Mm. And we just acknowledged that, that was she was on a one-way ticket. Mm. And um, I think that opened the subject and made it possible. And then we could talk about the future and her wishes for her baby and that sort of thing, which made it all easier. And I remember my healer lady saying, no, she said, no, no, what did she say? I've written it down, actually. This is more than 25 years old. It's lived <laughs> in my bag. No pretending, just a great loving. It doesn't hurt because it's lovely to have an understanding and be close. Tears are healing. Mm. And and she used to say, tell Millie to imagine, and this is the same for Anna, she's in a lovely place, and sort of be there. Think of being well and happy. Be in Jura. Be somewhere where you can relax and think of yourself in a happy scene. And tell them, she said, that always protected in love, always see herself surrounded by light, feel that her guardian angel is always by her to love and protect her. Mm. So Millie, Millie was very, and I think we all were really, reconciled to the fact that she would go, she'd had a good innings on, in life and she would go with the same grace as she'd lived. And she did. And she, the night before she died, she actually, she said to um, the nurse, the palliative nurse who came, that she wanted to get this over now. Mm. It was time to go. And so <laughs> the moment of going was... Quite a small moment, really, because we so knew it was coming. She was too ill to have any quality of life. And it was time to go. Mm. It was time to let her go. Yeah. And then what did you do after after that? What happened with your life? Because you, you weren't having to... I guess you weren't looking after her so much anyway, if she was... Well, uh, I, I then looked after my granddaughter, who lived with me for the next three years oh right right so I was fully oh, occupied with yeah. that and she was a total joy and um I went round I regarded her as my fourth child really and mm. we we then went to Montessori school <laughs> and when she got to about four and a half her father who had was an airline pilot and had gone back to work about a year after Millie's death uh, in Spain he felt that he was capable of looking after her himself then. And then she went to Spain and lived with him, which she still does. And that moment of her going was the terrible moment, actually. Mm. That was absolutely mm. devastating. Because I think I just sort of held on and poured all my love onto Lucia, and then that came to an end. But, of course, it was right that she went to her father, and we adapted, and I go to Spain a lot, and she comes to us for all the holidays, so oh. I'm lucky. Yes, yes. Mm. And um, and something you've been involved in since way back was um, you, there was some, a letter in the paper, or you wrote a letter in the paper about who's looking after the children. Uh, well, that was that was years ago, actually, in the early nineties, when. It was starting to be the case that mothers went out to work and there was a lot in the press of how mothers had the right to have somewhere to park their children while they were at work and it was all about the mothers and their rights. And so I wrote a letter to the Times saying, what about the children's needs, which I felt were being overlooked or even denied in order to make it possible to free up the mothers. And to a certain extent, this is still true. I, I think we we aren't sufficiently... Uh, prepared to recognise the needs of the children. And so some young children are definitely shortchanged because the poor mothers have been 
coaxed into the view that they're fine, the baby's fine without them, and it's quite all right to not be with them when they're very young. But in fact, the 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 facts are that if you don't look after the young child in a way that's emotionally nourishing and which um, helps them to regulate their emotions and to feel secure and to have good foundations, there is a price to pay later. So it's not in anybody's, um, it's not beneficial to anybody to um, deny the needs of the child or pretend they don't exist or to say that putting the child in some institution is just as good as them being with their mother when they're very young because the child has needs and they need to be uh, recognised and attended to for the child to grow up healthy and well-adjusted and confident. And so I think it's high time that we were truthful about the mother's needs and the mother's needs and the baby's needs because it, actually it's a need for the mother as well um, and allowed the mother to be with her very young child when they're so wholly dependent on her and when they're the only one really who can keep the baby close and make him safe. And and when the time comes to go back to work, as it must these days, the arrangement should be something that recognises that the child has needs and the parents are enabled somehow to be flexible so the father can also take care of the child or a family member or even a childminder who's committed to the child, all of which is better than... Um, having children in institutions before they're ready. And so that's what has been my passion, to advocate the needs of the child, because I know very well how harmful a poor beginning is. And um, I think we can avoid it if we understand about it. And so it's really for people to understand and acknowledge the children's needs that is required now and the government itself needs to be prepared to make um, bringing up children easier and more suitable than uh, it currently is when the tech system is geared against mothers who want to stay at home with their baby and it's also very heavily skewed in favour of childcare as opposed to um, allowing the mother to make her own decisions with the funding that's available. And um, so that's been what I've campaigned for when I've had time um, between bringing up my own children. Mm. And you and you wrote the you wrote the letter, and do you, do you get a response? To yes, that? I, I did get a response. Paper. I got yeah. several letters actually. One of which invited me to join a pressure group that was just starting, called in those days full time mothers, just to um, advocate the value of mothering, that it shouldn't be just dismissed as something that is optional or not of any particular um, use, but that we should recognise that it is a valuable thing. And actually, society depends on our next generation being well nurtured. And um, the, in, the, in the, the wish to get mothers free to work, often the, the, the children's needs have been not fully recognised. And this is where why I think now we've got such a, a crisis of mental health with young people who don't have resilience when they meet the um, challenges of this complicated 21st century world. Uh, a lot of that, I would say, is, is due to the fact that children very often haven't been given the most secure beginning in life. So that's been an ongoing... <laughs> have you been involved feature. all along? Because um, full-time mothers then... But it was renamed Mothers at Home Matter, and you're now the president, aren't you? Are you president? Is that your title? Yes, I'm president. <laughs> yeah, you're president of I'm Mothers not, at Home I'm Matter. I'm not very active now because there's a next generation come along. Yes, but and have you been involved all along? Yes, uh, I have. Yeah. I have, more or less. I was chairman at one stage, and then I had to mm. stop because I got cancer. Then Johnny died, and then my involvement became less necessarily. But I've, I've never not felt passionate about the cause. Yes. And have, have you seen much of a change in, um, I guess, in, in the re receptivity of government to the message uh, along the way? No, I think the government has become progressively more unreceptive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the trouble is that these things are not vote winners. And so, uh, but something like daycare 
is a vote winner. But the thing that uh, would be a vote winner and is a vote winner is that there should be funding towards families. But the government, in my opinion, has got the funding put too heavily in one direction and not enough for the families themselves. Uh, and we we campaign and the the organisation goes on campaigning, but it's hard work and uh, it's become more and more common for mothers to spend their life in the workplace and not at home and it's more it's so difficult for mothers and so unfair on them I feel to have so much pressure on uh, going back to work they they're dependent on for their salary uh, there's a no very not very good regard for mothers who are at home so the whole the whole pressure is on forcing mothers apart from their children really and um, I think that's that makes for a very tough call for the mother who wants to do right. Every mother wants to do right for their children, and yet there's so much loaded against her these days. Mm. And so, what would you like to see changing in um, in the approach from the government? Well, I, I would like I would like tax uh, the tax system to allow for mothers with dependent children. I think that the mother's tax allowance should be allowed against the fathers rather than being independent so that she is enabled to stay at home without what happens now, which is great financial penalty. It's hard, it's financially hard for parents, whatever you do, but actually I think it would save the government a lot of trouble if they allowed the mother to nurture the child in the early months and years if possible. Um, it would save a lot of cost of daycare and and of subsidies so I'd like to see tax and benefits more showing more understanding of the real needs of the child thank you very much Sarah thank you thank you very much for listening to this podcast uh, I'm Claire Pay you can follow the Mothers Matter podcast on Instagram and Facebook um, it's Mothers Matter podcast and on Twitter it's at podcast mothers or you can subscribe directly and I'd like to say a massive thank you to the wonderful people on iTunes I don't think they're my mother who have put some really nice reviews and any more really nice reviews would um, make such a difference I felt very encouraged by them so thank you very much much so please do subscribe directly through your uh, usual podcast um, app uh, or you can also email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com if you've got any comments or any ideas for future podcasts thank you very much thank you for listening to this podcast from mothers matter Thank you to James Ede from Be Heard, who has done the audio production. And thank you to Mothers at Home Matter for all their support. If you have any positive comments, anything nice to say, please write to mothersmatter at outlook.com. If you feel it's really necessary, please send any constructive feedback to the same address, mothersmatter at outlook.com. And please do subscribe. I really, really would love it if you would subscribe. I'm hoping to do a number of very interesting interviews and to give a voice to mothers everywhere. My name is Claire Pay and you've been listening to the Mothers Matter podcast. Thank you.